hey guys what's up and continuing with my travels I'm still in Britain and I got a pleasure to talk to four individuals from black and architecture black and architecture first started as a hashtag hashtag black and architecture which is collecting experiences black black British architectural professionals and students in the UK. It's a Black-led research defining responsive actions for racial justice, collecting data and to amplify our voices and documenting our experiences. You'll get in this episode. It's condensed and we really hit on a lot of topics. I got a mixed bag of, of a lot of experiences, issues that I would barely like scratch the surface. It was all impacted by what happened with George Floyd. And to understand that the stuff that we do in the U.S., the protest, the the cause of action has a global reach. With each of these individuals, how George Floyd's murder impacted them and how it created triggers for them and and for them to start something is amazing this is what a protest is about it's about sparking change it's about sparking creativity and amplifying your voice that trigger whatever it may be uh, especially for these four individuals express themselves differently so for one it was the role of the university and how the university brag about how diverse their campus is. They brag about the number of international students that they have. And to find out that it's all about numbers and it's all about the money. Another thing is that we talked about was the sole practitioner and how difficult it is for a black British woman who has all her credentials and yet finds it difficult in getting jobs. And you look at your colleagues, you look at people who you went to school with and they're able to get jobs. And you're like, well, what's wrong with me? And then you tap into your experiences of your first job or your second job. And those experiences kind of train you for what to expect unfortunately. Another thing we talked about that I brought up was the Architects Journal magazine. And first of all, they are wickedly expensive. I mentioned that in in the episode. We talked about that survey in particular, and this in comparison to what they're doing, to what AJ does. So yeah, it's again, very concise conversation with four individuals. So I record this ahead of time. What you're about to hear happened months ago. Just about. It feels like it anyway. And some things have changed. And I'm going to read off an email that I received. Okay. So thank you again for hosting myself. That's Juliet. Zimbea, Sade, and Irvin on your podcast, Architectural's Political, on the 9th of August, 2020. There's been a few events and changes since we spoke, and I thought it was worth noting these so that the podcast is published in the appropriate context. 
Sade, Zambea, and Irving are no longer work with me due to a number of issues that unraveled in the past few weeks. The vision for the research remains an idea that I created and I will continue to work on it. For now, also, I will be the only person working on it as the founder and principal investigator, but I hope to find a way to open it up again in the future, and I am also in conversation with a number of individuals, groups, and organizations on how to work alongside what already exists, how this research and associated outputs can best serve the wider architectural society. Kind regards, Juliet. Yeah, so I was heartbroken when I read that. I was looking forward to talking to all of them as a group again because it was such a lovely conversation. There, I, I thoroughly enjoy talking to each of them. So again, this is unfortunate, but the Black in Architectural is still going on. It's still going on strong. And I encourage you to not only visit the website, but also Twitter, and they're also on Instagram. So with all that said, the interview just jumps right off. You'll be introduced to each person and their stories. Yeah, you know, these things happen. And yeah, so okay. Here you go with Juliet. My name is Juliet Sachianza, so I'm an architect here in the UK and I'm currently doing a PhD in community capacity, BIM-based community capacity development in informal settlements. But I think first thing is introduce ourselves because we all kind of joined the Black in Architecture project team at different times and from different backgrounds. So I will talk a little bit about how it started because it all kind of links to your, your point about what is Black in architecture, how did we connect with the killing of George Floyd and um, the fact that we're collecting data and amplifying voices of Black British um, professionals and students in the UK. I was born in Ghana, originally born um, from Ghana, and I, I moved to the UK when I was um, young. So I started my school here and started my A-levels, which is um, high school uh, here as well. And I, I studied architecture, the Sheffield School of Architecture. For me, I went into architecture because I quite liked art and I thought architecture was a bit more open for a more stable, stable um, career path. <laughs> yeah. So I went along um, with architecture and I've stuck, I've stuck to it since. I first started my BA and um, a lot of things happened along the way in my education that maybe I wasn't aware what if it meant fully until years after and I reflected on it and I was like okay so that's what that was about okay so but there was always that kind of um, awareness that I was the only black person or I was the only um, other black person or other black female throughout my career and it had its good moments and bad moments but when the, the killing of George Floyd happened I a lot of a lot of the trauma kind of revisited I I felt it I felt it was it was very it was a very difficult time um, for me because I was also under a lot of pressure with my uni work and with my research and so that point hit me because I was kind of like working really hard and then I heard this and it just reminded me of 
all the hard work I have put into my career over the um, the last couple, almost couple of decades, almost two decades now, and and having to see maybe or perhaps my non-black people, um, former um, colleagues, etc., and thinking. I'm working so hard why can't I get these doors being open for me so it's it's it kind of um, made me re relive some of the trauma and um, I started mentioning a few of these experiences on my LinkedIn account and um, I was aware how awkward it was especially after people had posted the black squares and um, I, I went on Twitter one day and I saw black, black in the ivory and I, I started reading some of the experiences and I, I instantly knew it was, it was the US because over here we don't really discuss our, our issues <laughs> like that. Um, so I read a few of these and I thought, okay, let's, let's search for black in architecture. So I typed that into, into Twitter and searched for it and nothing came up. So I thought, okay, then, well, you know, just grab it and I, I, I just registered the, the profile and one friend engaged with it, Michael, Michael Badu, he engaged with it and he said, you know, what's this about? And we started chatting in our DMs <laughs> and we, we, we had, you know, very deep conversation. At first, it came across as something that was being set up to wake people up or to educate people. So I kind of cleared that up and I said, no, 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 no. This is not about that. This is about us. I think black people in architecture grabbing hold of the moment to tell our experiences and for us also to understand each other's experiences. My experience is going to be completely different to Shadi's experience, for example. And if I've been living with just the knowledge of my experience or the expertise of my experience, um, I think it's worth understanding broadly how others have, have gone through it or have experienced it in order to be um, able to perhaps know what changes that we want. Because at that point, there were a lot of issues about discussions about what needs to be changed, how the profession needs to, you know, be, be a, a more open and, you know, have more black people in senior or BAME, BAME professionals in senior positions, um, etc. But it all seems to just not touch on how it impacts, how systemic racism actually impacts on the everyday lives of people and it actually does impact it impacts on your performance on your family on your career everything it, it, and i felt like a lot of the time my colleagues who might be white or of other racial identity might not actually understand what i'm going through and at that point nobody was asking me how i felt about what was happening so i thought this would be a good moment to one connect with my other black people and to also get some understanding of what is it that we want changing in the industry because it, that's for me that's never clear see, there's been measures and policies but the exact actions that needs to be addressed or needs to be taken on seems not that clear in the industry and yeah so that's how that's how it started so we are collecting data and i'm sure um, the others will also touch up on it we are collecting um, data and um, it's quality, qualitative data on people's experiences and um, initially it was meant to be a bit more like black in the ivory where people voluntarily um, if they were to 
tweet their experience, then we will amplify, we will share it, we will retweet it, etc. But obviously, it's been quite experimental, and it hasn't it hasn't gone exactly how maybe Black in the Ivory hashtag has been going. So we've kind of um, adapted and adjusted and reprogrammed mm -hmm. <laughs> um, to to accommodate the dynamics over here in the UK. Okay. How old were you when you, you migrated? I was in yeah, so I, I must have been 11. Okay. Oh, you're going to ask my age now. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to ask you. <laughs> We're not going to go there. No, 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 no. We're all 21 right now. We're all 21. <laughs> no, because you're old enough to remember. Yeah, yeah. Different. Yeah. I'm old enough to remember being asked where I got my clothes from because in Africa we live on trees at school. This was at school and I'm, I went to school in one of the most multicultural uh, regions or areas in the UK. But yeah, it was, it was a very painful process. Very painful process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember it clearly <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> It's hard to forget, isn't it? I'm sure it really, yeah. Um, yeah, my my other colleagues will also share their experiences in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who's next? I guess I can go next. So hi, I'm Zubeda. Um I'm a recent graduate. I just finished my part one, which is the undergrad over here. For me, like the whole George Floyd thing was, it wasn't new to me or per se, but for a lot of black people as well, because I spent the past three years in my studies just kind trying to navigate my whole identity and everything. So I'm mixed race black, I'm Nigerian, and my grandmom is English, so she's here from, the, from Yorkshire. I lived in Nigeria till I was 11, and then I lived in Egypt till I was 18, 17, and then I moved to Scotland for university. So kind of, I grew up with a lot of like cultural environments around me. Some of my family members are from other parts of the world as well. And so I just, for a few years um, in my studies, I just kind of spent a lot of time trying to navigate my identity through architecture. I didn't really want to do architecture per se. I fell into it. I didn't really know what it was when I started. I just kind of fell in love with it as things went on. And I remember in my second year, I wanted to know more about my um, heritage. So, the, um, so like architecture across Nigeria. And I found that there was barely anything being taught. So in architectural history lessons, it would just kind of go off in passing. They'd fall. So for maybe one in every 12 or so lectures, they'd maybe mention, oh, Maxwell Fry or someone on tropical modernism. But they didn't really cover um, the regions where a lot of the students in my course are from. So for me, it was just kind of, I spent a lot of time researching non-Western architecture aside from my studies. And that kind of infuriated me because, you know, our schools kind of claim to be diverse. They invite all these students, but really it's just where cash cows. They see international students as a way to make money and nothing else, and they don't cater to that experience. And so for me, I kind of spent a lot of time in my studies kind of wanting to explore that aspect for myself. My dissertation was on Afrofuturism, and like there were no, there's basically no support. This is all individually led. And that was kind of really frustrating for me. So when the George Floyd, matter, um, George Floyd murder happened and the protests happened, I was kind of silent because it was a lot, it was really emotional. Like you spend a lot of time kind of thinking over these things. I spent the past three years arguing with people in my university, or not necessarily arguing, but just kind of voicing out my thoughts and concerns, but they were just kind of brushed off. 
So it was a very intense moment for me. And I just decided not to say anything because I didn't see it as my responsibility to educate anyone on what was happening. But then I think the one moment that kind of spurred me on, I remember was seeing um, a comment about protests here in the UK. And a lot of people genuinely thought, oh, this is an American problem. We don't really care in the UK. And it's really irresponsible of you to want to, to, want to organize events like this in the UK. And that, that just pissed me off. Like, because this UK, the UK was built on the exploitation of so many people. A lot of people aren't aware of like the violent history that the UK has and the way it's kind of the systemic racism has embedded in every single thing we do. So that's when I, I reached out to a, we have a student led architecture magazine at Edinburgh University. So I reached out to them and I think this architecture society, because they were very silent during those few months of protest, they hadn't said anything. So I was like, look, I have something to say. This is an article. I'm going to collect student experiences. And they published it. And then throughout that whole course, I found out about Black in Architecture. So I messaged them on Twitter and I got in a conversation with Juliet. And I just really liked what they were doing. And that's kind of how I got into being involved with Black in Architecture. Yeah. Okay. Next. I can go next. Um... I was a fellow student. I'm also a recent graduate. So it just did my master's in architecture. So I, I was born in Kenya. Born in Kenya and was What's raised... Name? Irvin, sorry. I should have started there. <laughs> my name is Irvin. Irvin Toretich. I'm from Kenya. I was born and raised there and then moved to Rwanda for a couple of years. But I was still in education high school in Kenya. And... I, I did fall in love with architecture. I knew I wanted to do architecture from my high school. Just the, the idea of creating an environment to influence people's um, routines really fascinated me. And that's, that's the main reason why I wanted to do it. And in that, I started looking for where would I be able to get the most out of learning architecture. And the UK was a really good option. And the UK, UK universities have a really strong presence in Kenya, they associate um, they are associated with different agencies that go to the different schools, and my school is one of them, my high school, where they advertise the university, the courses, what they do, the kind of support they provide, and they lure you in. And I was like, okay, this is a good place to go. And uh, then I came. Then so I ended up in a bachelor's in in the south of England. I did my three years there, and towards towards the end of that, actually before I even get towards the end of that, as I came to in the beginning to the UK, having been raised and born and raised in East Africa, racism wasn't something that I exactly experienced, or rather didn't know. I saw it. I saw it. I saw it on TV. I saw it. People talk about it. So I, I, I me being a black person. I said, I, I was like, obviously, I'm going to support that. But I hadn't really experienced racism because everyone around me um, was the same culture, was the same race. So coming to the UK, I, I, my mind hadn't switched to, okay, this is, racism might be more intense here. I just came to learn a different culture, to mingle with different sets of people from all over the world. And that's that, then when I came here, and then I, then I started to notice um, little things that then in my mind I was like, oh, wait. Is that racism? Maya, are they being racist? I'm not sure. You know, because I hadn't really experienced that. Then, then, then it started being an, uh, a thing of having to find my identity as a Black person in this new culture, in this university that is uh, multicultural, um, interracial. 
and having studied and, and graduated, then came the whole thing that started frustrating me of trying to get, trying to get employment as a Black person, which I, I guess we'll go into further detail later on. But that, that then spurred me into advocating for more transparency to international students to what they need to accomplish and what they need to do once they get here in order to continue progressing their, their education, their career. Because once you get here and you're in university, that's it. As long as you pay, the university doesn't care about you um, anymore. You give them out your money, you get your education, figure, figure it out for yourself. Then I quickly realized I cannot lean on the universities to help me as they said they would when they first came to our high school. The support they said they would give were not as relevant to me as they would be to a local, um, a local British student. Then I had to figure that, that out for myself. And coming, coming back from my master's, I came with the mindset that I need to be able to figure this out um, without, re- without relying on the university. Then I started getting in touch with, with some of the, my lecturers. And we, still make, we have a network now for the university here in Manchester, University of Manchester, in the Manchester School of Architecture, to create a network of alumni and presence and current students from different parts of the world. So I lead the current network for Africa. And the whole idea for that is to get to, to help the students or the alumni who have already graduated or who are coming into the UK, connect them with, with each other and help them understand what it is that they need to be doing, how, how they need to be um, addressing different situations, not just to stay in, in the UK, but opening different opportunities for them in different parts of the world, back in, in Africa, in East Africa, West Africa, because that, that is not available for them through the university. And that is what, that is what I'm passionate to try and help provide these international students. And then when my work in that, talking to my colleague who knew Juliet, then Juliet um, contacted me about, about um, Black in architecture. We had a conversation with Juliet, and I told her my interest is beyond. Is, 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 I, would, I asked her if it's just going to be limited to the UK, UK black, black in architecture um, community, or can we also extend it to the international, international community? And Juliet loved the idea. And I said, if we're down for that, I am down for that, and we would definitely want to work together. And then that's, that's where we are now. All right. And finally, I'm Sade. I was born in France. My parents had me whilst they were there studying. And then we moved to Nigeria um, when I was three. And we stayed there till I was 10 and then moved to the UK. So for me, the UK, it was because uh, obviously I had very sort of childhood memories of Nigeria. So back then, moving to the UK was a sort of a trying to sort of fit in into a new culture, trying to sort of kind of, the process I think is a sort of a loss of identity, a loss of culture when you're trying to fit in. So I went through that process without actually being conscious that I was going through that process. I went to a school that was very diverse, had lots of different people from Asian communities, West African Caribbean communities, African communities, as well as British students. So the school is very diverse and they pushed, it was a girls' school. So 
it had a feminist twist, which was that you could do whatever you wanted to do. And that created an environment that made it comfortable to have a much more broader perspective of what I could do. I got a work experience in an architectural practice. I didn't actually want the experience. It's a funny story. A girl in the very first lesson of art class said she wanted to be an architect. And I didn't know what that was. I asked her what it was and she said, you know, to do with buildings and that's what I want to do. And this is at the age of 11. So come the age of 15, that really stuck with me. So when we were trying to sort out work experience, I was trying to get into a graphic design studio. She obviously trying to get into this architectural practice, was schemed so that she would put the graphic design studio as her first choice. I would do the same with the architectural practice and it came back the other way around. So I ended up in the architectural practice, loved it. it was so, I was exposed to social housing and that was it, loved it. So um, the experience in architectural practice has been interesting working for others <laughs> when you're the only black person in the office it's a not a yeah not a very comfortable experience i would say so for me as soon as i got qualified i was thinking about setting up so i would say maybe three years post qualifying i set up my practice which was 10 years ago and it's a very small practice it's it's micro practice it's been myself it hasn't really grown so that has been a challenge, trying to figure out why this practice is not growing. What is it that I'm not doing right? Why is it that my white counterparts are able to grow and get the opportunities? I'm networking, so what, what is it that I'm not quite doing right? It so happens that around this period with COVID and Black Lives Matter, I'm working with a local authority on a small project and they put out a, a public procurement exercise which is to try and find the architectural practices that they want to work with and give projects to so it's like a, a simple way of seeing it is it's like a menu list of preferred architectural practice so anytime the council wants to procure a project they will refer to this list and this list would be in place for four years so i work in this in this district as you would say in the us and we call it borough I work in this borough, I'm kind of working with them on a small project. I submit my proposal thinking I'm in a strong position. I am not chosen. And then they finally publish the list and there isn't a black-led practice. And it's in an area where it's very diverse. It's 60% ethnic minorities. Mm. And it's got a strong black African population. So it's very, very sort of, it's very glaring. You can't ignore this. And at the time it was published, it was just COVID was just the, 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 the main issue that everyone was concerned about. And for me, when I saw the list, I thought in a post-COVID world, this list is ridiculous because the impact on COVID on the BAME, on, we call them BAME, it's Black Ethnic Minority, Minorities, it's the, it's the um, acronym that we use here. So the impact on ethnic minorities in the UK has been very severe. We know that um, a high proportion have, had, have suffered and died from COVID. We know that it's overcrowded housing that's contributed to this. So when I saw the list and I thought, in a post-COVID world, this list is just grotesque. And it sort of kind of built momentum on LinkedIn. And then Black Lives Matter 
blew up just before it blew up just the weekend before it actually blew up and the statues were falling i wrote an email to the local authority to just because i'm working with teams there already and i have relationships there so i felt i could see that my black colleagues were already talking about this and i felt i've got to say something i can't just be silent on this issue just because i'm working with them and maybe because i am working with them i'm better placed to talk about this issue so I wrote an email and just said, look, I think, you know, you guys took, you tried to make this procurement, procurement process accessible, but I think you didn't go far enough. You made it accessible for small, um, small practices, but actually in terms of black-led practices, you need to consider that when we start our practices, we're coming from a different socioeconomic background. When our white counterparts are starting their practices, they're highly networked they've got family connections that just, yeah, they start to build a portfolio. And then when we're networking for opportunities, we've got the hangups of race, gender, all of this unconscious issues going on. White counterparts don't have that. So when we come to a, to a procurement exercise with our portfolios, it's going to be drastically different to, you know, someone who hasn't faced the cha these challenges. If you're comparing um, black architects to white counterparts, it's just not a level playing field. So I tried to explain this and uh, Black Lives Matter blew up. And then it was, I think having said that email, I'm usually quite silent. <laughs> I give my opinions to myself. So having written that email, Black Lives Matter happening, I felt in a very sort of activist mood of I want change. We want to access opportunities. The reason why we're in this situation in this country is historical legacy and that needs to be acknowledged and also when we migrate into due to colonialism and all of that when we migrate into into britain we're in we're living in social housing usually typically and we're from different socioeconomic backgrounds all of this comes into play and also that the profession is changing it's changing it's it's having a different you know different backgrounds are coming into the profession. So you've got to open the opportunities up. So I came across Black in Architecture, got in touch with Juliet, and um, I said, I'm feeling highly politically charged. How can I help? And that's how I got involved. He's ready to fight. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk to each of you individually for like three hours. You covered what? four or five countries between each of you? No, more, like seven, eight. Cause yeah, yeah like it's- I think so. Oh my gosh. It's really <laughs> an international and all converge into one country that started racism. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Did you guys have any role models? Oh. I, I have a bitter story about role models in architecture. Um, I didn't, not in architecture. Okay. I have one in my career, you know, in my life. Just my mom. Not in, not Yeah, no, not, not in architecture. Um, I almost had one. I mean, I almost had one when I was doing my, after my MRC, but sometimes, sometimes they say, <clears throat> Excuse me. It's better to not meet your your icons. Is, is that right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh no! I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. How about any of you guys? I sort of picked some up along the way because I wasn't like I was through architecture. I was kind of trying to navigate my own identity and understand my architecture. So along the way, I think it was around second year, I started reading extensively on West architecture in West Africa. And just the lack of architects in general just kind of made me do like a really extensive search. So I just kind of came across Mariam Kamara. And she, for me, was like kind of the pivotal moment in my kind of my trying to understand what I was trying to do. She kind of helped me understand what I wanted to gain out of architecture. So I guess you could, to a certain extent, call her an, an icon, but I don't kind of fix my aspirations on what she does. But I kind of try to look around that and what I want to do for myself and the people around me. Can you have a role model practice instead of a person? Hey, whatever encouragement could be Because to me, I, I wonder, one of the practices that changed the way I think is a practice in Kenya called CAVE. And the idea within CAVE is that they are researching. It's almost like what our Black in Architecture group is doing. But the CAVE practice, they're researching into the history of Kenya and their architectural, um, the architectural history. Because a lot of people, a lot of uh, people, at least the director was telling me in his life, a lot of people uh, say that they want, they want African architects to be expressed a lot more. But when you get down to it, what is African architecture? African, Africa is a really big place and you have a lot of different countries in, in this continent. So within Kenya, CAVE is trying to, trying to differentiate what actually is Kenyan architecture. And the, the answer to that is not exactly the exciting bit, but the process to it. The fact that there's something that you need to happen, something that needs to happen, but you don't know what it is. So how can it happen if you don't know what needs to happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one thing I've noticed is that in trying to kind of raise awareness on how deep and systemic racism is, especially from like an African background, we tend to not subconsciously kind of say all African, but then people kind of forget that how diverse Africa is. Like I lived in Kenya for six months and as a Nigerian, I had no idea like how different our cultures were. Like on a superficial level I did, but like we don't really, even within the continent, interact with each other as much to understand the differences that we have. I have a funny story. My girlfriend came to the UK from Kenya as well. She. I always hear her introducing herself to other people, saying that she's from Africa. I always hit her hand and say, you're not from Africa, you're from Kenya. You're right. (laughs) Even over here, I always scream and yell, 50 plus countries on a continent of Africa. And it's not a country, it's a continent. I think it's part of ignorant Americans too. They really don't know the difference between Nigerian and Kenyan. Or Mm. South Africa and Nigeria. That's the only, and Egypt. But they don't consider that as part of Africa. It's amazing. So um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's I think yeah. I think in this day and age, to kind of um, accept that you know I don't know the difference between two countries in in Africa. I think I think we just owe ourselves some kind of dignity to make it our responsibility to learn about these things, especially when it plays such a massive role in the development of or the growth of um, another country most of the countries here in europe definitely in the uk so i think this 
is linked to people who are um, protesting for a change in the curriculum in school curriculum as well not just in architecture because it starts from as young as nursery what are we teaching what books are we showing and writing and which authors are we showing i've got a little girl and now that more than ever i'm making an extra effort especially being outside of africa making it my responsibility to make sure that she gets both sides of the story yeah so i think the change in curriculum the protest on that has to hopefully that we see some change but uh, there's no excuse for ignorance <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's it's i'd just like to chip in on that it's kind of it's the curriculum is designed to whitewash history to be on uh, the pictures writes the history writes their version of history so it's it's there to sort of to sanitize what the british did but in a diverse multicultural society it actually does us harm i feel i feel that young ethnic minority children i'll speak for myself i had a great school experience but i will say i was not protected i was in a diverse <laughs> school so i was not protected i wasn't ready for the experience i was i would face in the workplace I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't ready for the sort of the prejudices, the racism that would come up. So I think it, it doesn't prepare um, ethnic minorities children in terms of what's going to come up. And I think in terms of British, British kid, kids that have been actually born here, I think it sort of, it, it, it doesn't make you aware of, as it, when you go through the school system and then you become an adult, it doesn't allow you to become aware of your privileges. So you're unaware of how history has brought us here and how we are in a system where you benefit and how you benefit. So it sort of puts you in a very sort of kind of, how do I say, a shielded position where you can choose to close yourself off and um, enjoy your, uh, enjoy the privileges that you have. And so when you're challenged, you're like, oh, you know, they're just making a fuss. They're just complaining. It's them again. Whereas if we're actually you know, exposed to history from both sides, you're ready. You're ready to kind of, uh, yeah, deal with the world and maybe have a better discuss, a better debate and um, maybe a better yeah. society on it. Mm-hmm. I want to touch upon the Architects Journal. Architects or Architecture Journal? Architects. Architects Journal. Architects Journal. Okay. Yeah. AJ. That's extremely expensive for me to get over here. For myself, for myself too. <laughs> it's... <laughs> it's hundreds of dollars for a magazine for me to get it. But anyway, every year they do a survey and they publish it and it, it, it asks the question. I think it was a long time ago. I want to say maybe five, six years ago. I didn't dig too deep into the publication, but I remember every year they have something and they publish the women and then with the BAME, uh, uh, you guys are aware of this. And when you first came across it, what were your reactions? And I guess what I'm trying to get at is they already established and published the blatant systematic racism that happens in the practice of architecture. How is this different from what they are publishing to what's happening now? So- so I should chip in because I know a little bit about the AJ. I'm a subscriber. So at the moment, they've 
collaborated with an organization called the Student Lawrence Trust to carry out a survey. They carried out a survey the first time around about two years ago, and they carried one out again this year, and it just showed that the experiences are getting worse for being people in practice. What they have done a couple of weeks ago is because they're well realizing that it's a it's a movement that's going on at the moment it's not a movement so they essentially looked at that survey again and interrogated it and looked at what could be done in terms of entry into architecture education and once students are in education what can be done to make sure that they stay because we have a sort of a, we've got three stages in our architectural education in the UK. And what we know is that being students drop out at different stages. There's a break between part one and part two where you've got to get a year's work experience in office and then you go back into part two and then you have to get work placement again to be able to do your part three. But we know that people are dropping out at different stages. So the article looks to see what can be done to ensure that being students are retained all the way through. So it looks at education and then it looks at life and practice. What could be done in terms of diversity? I have, I have my ideas around diversity, but it, they talk about, you know, having different, being people at different levels in organizations, not just that we're finding they're just, you know, at the bottom ranks, but actually what can we do to get them up at uh, directorship level? And then it looks at procurement, which I touched on earlier, which is we need local authorities to be opening up opportunities, local authorities not employed. <laughs> I mean, they've employed me on a small project, but if you look at the stats, it's not very good in terms of employing BAME-led practices. So that's what the AJ is doing at the moment. They, they're trying to be topical on the, on the matter. So they, they are trying to kind of come up with recommendations of what the profession could be doing. What would be some of your recommendations in terms of practice? In terms of practice, I, from my experience, so I, I went into practice maybe 15 years ago, actually, and I worked for a big practice that I'm not going to name. When I got there through conversations with colleagues, I was, they let me know that when they received my CV, they were expecting a man. So I don't know what that meant when they said they saw my CV and they thought I was a man. But I got the job, and but it was a painful experience because the kind of mentorship that I got, there was no mentorship really. I got very sort of basic, uninteresting work, unmotivating work. And I was in a team that had other people from my uni that I knew. Um, also part two students and they were getting really good experience really good experience one was sat next to the the project lead <laughs> so he had like he was able to have such a full grasp of the project whereas here was I I was doing ME coordination really not really understanding this big project or what was going on completely out of my depth and so the mentorship that I received was just not there really and, uh, and it felt like there were, it was a tick box exercise. I was the only black person there. There was one other Asian girl who's part one. How big was the practice? Um, at the time, there were over 100. And you were the only black person? Yeah. yeah. Are you serious? Really? Yeah. Wow. Yes. 100 people. Yeah. 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 This is very common. I mean, it's, it's not unusual. Yeah. <laughs> 
it was it was yeah and um it was it just it felt like a tick box exercise and thankfully we in the uk there's a system if you're going to do your part three you have to report back to the school to get your logbook signed and so when i went to my university the woman that i saw said look <laughs> you're not getting the best of experiences unless you really see a ladder a career ladder in this place i suggest you move to a smaller practice but they will use you you know because they need you they can't just have you there <laughs> sitting around doing nothing so yeah i think you better move so which is what i did so i think my recommendations it's it's not just about getting i say it like this in the most crudest way it's not about just getting black bodies in you've got to change the culture and you might even need to look at the structure of the organization to make it safe places for people to thrive so if you don't if you just get you know if you just do the tape box exercises and you have people that are just not willing to share and um, provide support, it's just going to be a traumatic experience for whoever comes into that organization. So diversity, yes, but look at the culture and look at what you can be doing to make sure that they get all the support that they need to thrive. Yeah, I guess let me just jump in on that with kind of similar recommendation, but, but kind of a little bit changed towards architectural education about BME students dropping out at different stages of education. In my experience, I did definitely see a significant difference of Black international students in my bachelor's, where we had about 180 students. There was quite a range of diversity in my bachelor's, but the moment you cross over to my master's, I think we're almost, that, that I've seen or interacted with almost 10, 10, 15, of about the same number, 180. So, so my master's education, my bachelor's, there is quite a significant difference or, of any community that is um, included. So what I, what, I was, what I have been thinking about over the past year and a half or so, two years as I come to my graduation, is how, how this education system would be able to support and represent the Black uh, international students better is that I know once I graduated I didn't have any idea of what I needed to do to get my work permit which is the tier two visa when you come to the UK you're you're on a tier four visa which is a student visa and in order to work you need to get a tier two visa which is a work permit and there's literally almost no information from the university on how to get that because you, you need a practice to sponsor you on that and I only got to realize this once I started applying and once I started applying in my undergraduate and my practices were telling me if I need a tier two visa, if I need a work permit, do I have the right to work? So I'm thinking I have a student visa. So is that not a right to work? I went back to the university, the careers advice, career um, support, because that's where that's the um, obvious first place to ask for help. And the unanimous um, advice that have been given time and time again is that just go to the government website. Go read it, it's on the government website. We don't know much about it. It's on the government website, I can give you the link. Tier two visa, I'm not too sure about it. So the unanimous advice, not just for my undergrad, but for my bachelor's as well, is that literally almost no one knows what to do. Crazy. Nobody knows what to do, how am I meant to know what to do? So I decided, you know what? I'll just research it for myself. I'll figure this out on, on, on my own and try to get to get the best out of it. Try to network with as many people who have gone through the same system 
so I would, I would, I would really recommend um, the universities to have some kind of uh, expert or someone who's knowledgeable in this uh, transition between tier two, tier four, which is a student, to tier two, which is a work permit, to be able to at least have a basis of information, research for yourself, definitely, but have someone there who's able to guide you in as much as a local student will be able to be to get uh, support. Did you have the same experience too? I kind of had like a pseudo international student experience because I was at university as an international student, but I have a British passport. Mm. So like I didn't have to deal with the visa issues and whatnot, but when it came to, so I did like a sandwich course. So we had like a semester out to work in practice. So I was interested, like I told myself, I just, because I was interested in working eventually in working with West African architecture, I told myself at the very least to find a firm somewhere on the continent. That was just kind of my criteria. Just so I could get a better understanding of what it'd be like to work there, even though it's not necessarily the same in different countries. And just trying to get a better understanding in terms of the support you'd have when you're working outside the UK or Europe for that matter, is there's very little available. So I remember we had a lecture, I think, where they kind of, they give us a few talks and uh, they give us a bit of advice on what's going to be like an employment in terms of how you deal with, say, visa issues or pay or things like that, or how do you even log your experiences outside the EPEs that we have here in the UK? Because even though you can get experience in the UK, you still need a minimum amount of experience, I think, to kind of qualify eventually. So I'm not entirely sure. There's just kind of a few gray spots in terms of how um, universities address things outside of the UK, given the fact that I'd say a third of students in most universities are international that they need to address. For me, it was um, a bit different because I, I didn't have any issues with visa, etc. because... Um, I, I had indefinite leave and then I, was a, I became a British citizen. Um, so I didn't have any issues in that um, respect. But I can imagine it being quite difficult if you're studying architecture and you have... Oh, actually, I do remember one, one, one time when we had to go on a field trip, just applying for visa to travel to Europe. Yeah, so those, those were the only issues. But in terms of working, I haven't got any... Um, I didn't have any issues with that. Okay, so for a long time, I guess my living in the UK situation was unsettled, let's say. I think that's the best way to describe it. So for, let's say, about for 10 years, it was unsettled. And then through doing my first year of my degree course, we, we had a field trip to go to. And so I had a discussion with my mother and I thought, okay, we've got a situation here. I've got a field trip. How are we going to manage this? And um, she got in touch with our local MP and that then started the process of us becoming um, nationalised in the UK. And that started the process of us becoming British citizens. So actually the architecture education prompted us to, to really address a problem that we didn't want to look at. <laughs> And um, it yeah, improved, obviously, the, having the security of being, of being nationalised in, in the UK, just it created a different sort of, a different sort of security. Yeah, it's, it's a complex story to say, to talk about when you sort of, when you have that sort of, that period of living in the shadows, if I can say that, of not drawing attention to yourself because you haven't got the correct status.
and then suddenly yeah suddenly we kind of faced it sorted it and it sort of gave us a, a certain level of security and it's interesting because then what happened was that there was this sort of a beginning of embracing my Nigerian identity up until that point I was trying to assimilate and trying to fit in and try not to draw attention and then once we became I became a British citizen there was a sort of going back to Nigeria because now so that we can do that and then there was a sort of more kind of easing feeling a, a bit of ease about my Niger, Nigerian identity but still there's still that you know if you're working in practice there's still that kind of trying to fit into the office culture and yeah so but yeah that was my story in terms of these are issues. <laughs> hmm, I have like more questions, but it's about that time. I would love to have you guys back on because I want to talk about Brexit. I want to talk about just being the anomaly and assimilation. I've struggled with that since I started this architecture profession, the different levels of assimilation from happy hour to the language or the lingo of, you know, your colleagues, because sometimes you don't get it. I remember real brief, I was at work and this old school black performer died, Teddy, Teddy Pendergrass, that was his name. Mm. And I was devastated. And I was like, oh my gosh, can you believe he died? And they were like, who's that? And I was just like, oh my gosh, how do you not know who this man is? Or even politics that or issues that reflects us, they have no idea. TV shows, I don't watch Friends, it's the, the culture of it. So I have to have you guys back on to talk more about this. I noticed on your website, you can, you sign up and you can you talk more about your website and what people can can do to participate? Hi, yes. So we, we've been inviting people to share their experiences with us. I mean, it has to be experiences in the UK just because we're working within like architecture as defined here in the UK. So there's a Google form, which is still live. And yeah, it would be great to get more experiences. So if anybody, anybody's listening, today's from the UK or maybe had some experiences um, as part of their education or career here in the UK but are no longer here and they have some experiences to share that would be great because the more we have the more solid our analysis will we'll, we'll, we'll be able to um, propose a strong set of um, actions for, for change hopefully. Okay. So thank you guys so much. Again, we're no longer strangers. So thank you so much. Thank you so uh, much for having us. It's been have great a good to evening. You. Have a cup of tea. I don't know what you guys do. <laughs> cup of tea. <laughs> Crumpets. I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I do. I do drink African, jello tea. So some um, <laughs> jello rice and some. Oh, you know about jello rice. Yes. Hey listeners, I have an exciting announcement. I decided to launch a membership program for the show where you have a chance to support me and the show directly. I love creating the show and it means the world to me that you all tune in to keep hearing me week after week but it takes an immense amount of time and energy to produce. I wanna keep the show going and I want to invest in its growth. 
And I also want you to become a partner with me in this journey. That's why I'm excited to give you a chance to officially become a supporter of the show at glow.fm slash archispolly, A-R-C-H-I-S-P-O-L-L-Y, or by clicking the link in the show notes. It's quick and easy. It takes less than 30 seconds and just takes clicking a link in the show notes and using Apple or Google Pay. You don't have to create any new logins and you can contribute as much or as little as you like. If this show is part of your day or week and you like what I'm doing, then visit glow.fm slash archespolly, all one word, and support me and the show in any way you can today.